receive God's Word spiritually, and that is accomplished through the use of 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, He, God the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, the principle of that verse is that when the believer sins, it's always a sin against God. We know that from the Old Testament because when David sinned his heinous sin of murder and adultery and the complicated cover-up which followed, when he finally got around to confessing his sin and dealing with it, he said, Lord, against thee and thee alone have I sinned. That when we sin, the issue spiritually is not between us and other people. It is no one else's business what we do or what we have done. It is between us and the Lord and the Lord alone. So, confession of sin is conducted in the privacy of our priesthood as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And all we have to do is silently admit or acknowledge our sins to God the Father. And the result is that we are instantly cleansed of our sins, forgiven, and we are filled with God the Holy Spirit. And it is God the Holy Spirit who is our unique dynamic in the spiritual life. Remember, anything that an unbeliever can do is not part of the spiritual life of the church age or of the Christian. Therefore, we must live that life on the basis of the filling of the Holy Spirit. So it is important before we look at God's Word to make sure that we are filled with the Spirit and prepared for study. So let's bow our heads together, a few moments of silent prayer, and then we'll begin. Father, we thank you for this opportunity as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to gather together this Sunday to worship you by studying your word. We have clearly said that those who worship you must worship you by means of truth, which comes from your word, and by means of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ, when he di- before he died on the cross, was praying that night and he said, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. That your word is absolute truth. And you have told us that in it you have given us everything pertaining to life and spirituality. So, Father, now as we open your word of truth, we pray that we might understand it as God the Holy Spirit makes it clear to us and that we would respond to it positively. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to John chapter 3. The Gospel of John chapter 3. The third chapter of John, we have the unique opportunity to eavesdrop on one of the most remarkable conversations in all of history. Conversation between two rabbis. A well-trained rabbi who is has all of the Uh, education that one might expect in Jerusalem. He has afforded himself of of everything that uh, Judaism had to offer at that time. And the other, a rabbi with no formal education, who comes from the backwoods, so to speak, of Galilee, where there is no respect for for Galileans or their, their learning or their background. And this, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet it is the more learned Rabbi, who is a ruler of the Jews by the name of Nicodemus, who is the one who comes to the unlearned, uh, untrained, formally untrained rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth, 
in order to ask him questions. Because obviously Nicodemus is troubled. Even though he is described as a ruler of the Jews, which means that he sat on the Sanhedrin, the Council of Seventy that ruled uh, Jerusalem and Judea. He was a Pharisee. He had received all of the academic training that was available to him at that time. He knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. He could probably recite hundreds of verses from memory. He knew all of the traditions of the rabbis in terms of their various interpretations. He knew all of the rituals that had been incorporated over the years. And he was indeed a man of ritual and religion. He was a man who sought to gain approval from God through his ritual and his, his religion. He was a man who understood, contrary to many people who live today, he was a religious man who understood some basics about the character of God. We know that God is sovereign. He is the ruler of all creation, the ruler of the universe. God is also righteous, absolute righteousness, so I use a plus sign to indicate that. He is plus R. He is perfect righteousness. There is no sin or error with God. God dwells, in fact, in unapproachable light, the Scripture says, a metaphor for absolute perfection. He is just. That means in all that God does, every decision that God makes, He is absolutely fair with every creature. God is also perfect love. Perfect love. Now, the problem is that most people want to take the love of God and blow that up so big that it overshadows every other attribute of God. Yet we never do that with any human being. We know that every one of us has a certain number of attributes that apply to their character. And they all work together. We just separate the attributes out for God for learning purposes. But they all uh, work together. They're all complementary of one another. There's no conflict between them. God is also eternal life. There never was a time when God did not exist. He has no ending. He has no beginning. He knows all things. He is omniscient. That means that God knows all the knowable. He knows everything that has ever happened in human history and everything that will ever happen in human history. And not only that, He knows all the possibilities and potentialities. He knows what would have happened if you had had made certain decisions which you did not make. If you had decided to go to this college rather than that college. If you had decided to marry this person or this other person. God knows what would have taken place. He knows all the knowable, the real as well as the potential. God is also omnipotent. That means that God is able to bring about everything that He desires to bring about. He is all-powerful. There is nothing in the universe more powerful than God. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. And He is, I mean, He is omniscient, omnipotent, and He is omnipresent. That means He is present to every part of His creation, every part of the universe, simultaneously. He is everywhere. Whether you go four or five hundred light years from here into some other galaxy or here on planet Earth, at the same moment in time, God is present to every aspect of His creation. He is not in His creation. He is distinct from His creation. But He is present to every aspect of His creation. God is also veracity. That means He is absolute truth. In God there is no error. There is no shadow of uh, our shifting shadow James 1 uh, 18 tells us he is absolute truth and he is immutable he does not change 
He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is no change in God. Now, Nicodemus understood the character of God. He understood all of this. And yet, as a Pharisee, he focused more on the righteousness of God. And so his concern was, how can I be righteous enough to enter into heaven? Now, what we have learned in our study of the character of God is that these three characteristics must work together and always do work together in perfect harmony. We have seen that the perfect righteousness of God is His absolute standard. What the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God supplies or executes, always motivated by the love of God and expressed through His grace policy. Now, Nicodemus understood that God was perfect righteousness, but he also knew that mankind lacked righteousness because of sin. Therefore, if man lacks righteousness, then his goal is to measure up to the perfect righteousness of God. For Nicodemus understood that what the righteousness of God rejected, the justice of God would condemn. So the concern of the Pharisees was to use the ritualistic and religious system of the Mosaic Law to try to somehow acquire a righteousness that was that was uh, would conform to God's character and would acquire God's approval. So he was always concerned with, am I righteous enough? Am I good enough in order to gain God's approval? Now, we live in, in an era today when people are less concerned with righteousness and they want to put all of their emphasis on the love of God. And they want us to ask questions like, well, if God is really loving, how can he send his creatures to the lake of fire? And they always ask to focus on love and ignore righteousness. Now, the problem with Nicodemus was he focused on righteousness and ignored love. And the two, these, these three attributes always work together. What the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns. But the love of God motivates him to provide a grace solution. And that grace solution is provided through the Lord Jesus Christ. Once you accept that provision of, of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone, then we're given the perfect righteousness of Christ. So that what the righteousness of God accepts, the justice of God blesses, motivated by the love of God and the grace of God. Now, Nicodemus does not understand all of this. And as a Pharisee, he came to the Lord and he's really concerned. The underlying question that he's asking is, how do I know if I'm righteous enough to get into heaven? I mean, is all my ritual, is all my religious activity really good enough? Now, this takes a tremendous amount of humility for Nicodemus, and we ought to have a lot of respect for him at this particular point. Because Nicodemus has all of the respect and admiration of, of the Jews in, in Jerusalem. He was probably well-known, famous. He was from the wealthy uh, arist aristocracy of Jerusalem at that time. And he would have been well known. And he could have operated on arrogance and pride and said, I know all the answers. I know the rituals of the fathers. I know their traditions. I know the Mosaic Law. On that basis, I know all the answers. But yet, like anybody who is truly humble and truly honest with themselves, Nicodemus was troubled deep inside. Because he really wasn't sure if his righteousness if his, the rituals that he had engaged in were really good enough to get him into heaven. 
So he came to Jesus one night and he asked them the question, Rabbi, which indicates tremendous humility for him to call this, this man with no formal credentials from Galilee, Rabbi. He says, we know. He had, they have certainty. It's not just Nicodemus, but other members of the Sanhedrin as well. Know that you have come from God as a teacher. They've heard of the miracles that Jesus has performed, and they know that they fit the credentials of the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament. There's no doubt in his mind that no one else other than the Messiah promised and prophesied in the Old Testament could have done the things that you have done. And he says, we know that no man can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, he's, he's not really committing himself to the conversation. He's hesitant, he's timid, and he doesn't come right out and ask the question that is truly bothering him, and that is, am I good enough to get into the kingdom of God? But Jesus, who knows what is in the hearts of all men, that's what John says at the end of chapter 2. Remember, this is an illustration of those closing verses that Jesus knows what is truly in the hearts of all men. Jesus answers the question that has gone unasked. Jesus answers in in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, truly, truly indicates that he is saying something of absolute authority. He says, I say to you, unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And we saw that he, Jesus uses a particular word here, anothen. A, this is what it looks like in the Greek, anothen. A-N-O-T-H-E-N. And it has two meanings. The first meaning is again, and the second meaning is from above. Look it up in any Greek lexicon and you'll find these two meanings. And the Lord uses this word for the specific purpose of indicating both aspects. That this involves a second birth beyond the initial physical birth. And that second birth has its origin in God. It is from above. It is not natural and it does not have its origin in human will, human energy or human effort. And when Jesus said this, we saw last time that Nicodemus becomes quite flustered, for he cannot comprehend this. The doctrine of regeneration, and that's what this is called, the doctrine of regeneration, which the Pharisees had, was a regeneration that was based on human works. First you obeyed the law. First you got your life under control. First you became moral, and then you would be called a child of God. And Jesus is saying it's just the opposite, Nicodemus. If you want to be a child of God and enter the kingdom of heaven, then first you have to be born again, and then there's a transformed life. You have to start with the work of God. You don't start with the work of man. So Jesus is turning it over, turning Nicodemus's whole background upside down and leaves him quite flustered. As a Pharisee, the Pharisees emphasized cleansing, washing. This was all... all An intense part of all of their rituals was washing. They were obsessed with it. The whole imagery there of cleansing from sin. There were all kinds of washings for all kinds of activities. And so the term water that's used in this passage recalls to mind the ritualistic washings that are present in in Judaism. And what would happen is if you were a Gentile or a new baby at circumcision, and you were going to join Judaism for the baby when he was a week old, they would be circumcised, followed by a ritual scrubbing, really. It was a a washing 
to uh, symbolic of the of the deep cleansing that was needed from all sin. And so when Nicodemus hears this, and the reference to to washing that's coming up, what he's hearing is the, becoming a Jew through this transformation and this ritual. He doesn't understand how can this apply to me? I'm already a Jew. What Jesus is saying is that the physical realities, your physical birth as a Jew, is not enough. Now, some people rely upon their physical birth into whatever denomination it is that that's good enough. But Jesus is pointing out here, whatever the physical realities are, that's not good enough. There has to be a spiritual transformation. So Nicodemus is quite confused by all of this because it runs contrary to everything he has taught and everything that he has been taught. And Nicodemus just thinks in terms of physical, physical frame of reference, and he says, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And both of these terms that are used here, water and the Spirit, Take us back to the terminology in Ezekiel 35 in the New Covenant where God promised that there would be a time when He would wash and cleanse Israel and that He would provide a a spirit inside of them. This is all foreshadowed in the Old Testament. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, if you don't understand this, if you don't understand that there must be this kind of spiritual rebirth, the water speaks of cleansing, from sin, and the Holy Spirit, that new life that comes as a result of regeneration. If you do not have cleansing from sin and a new life, then you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus says, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That's physical birth. And then he says, that which is born of the Spirit, that which is born of the Holy Spirit, is spirit. So the Holy Spirit gives birth to something called the Spirit. And this we know as the human spirit. So let's stop here. We've summarized where we've been so far in our study of this chapter. And let's focus on the doctrine of regeneration. A summary of the doctrine of regeneration. Point number one is terminology. Terminology. The first term that's used in the Greek is the term polingonasia. Polingonasia. P-A-L-I-G-E-N-N-E-S-I-A. It's from two words, a compound word. Pollen means again, and gonasia has its root meaning as birth. So it literally means to be born a second time or born again. And we find this word used twice in the New Testament. It's used in Titus 3.5, which says, It's not by works of righteousness which we have done. Now that's a fairly strong statement. It excludes all human effort. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done. It excludes all religion. Remember, religion is defined as man's efforts to acquire the approval of God through his own efforts. Man does the work, and God is supposed to bless it. But that's not what the Scripture says. The Scripture says it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saves us. How does he save us? 
by the washing of regeneration and renewal by means of the Holy Spirit. So once again, we come back to those two elements that Jesus mentions in John 3. The washing of regeneration, which speaks of the cleansing of sin, and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit creates in us something new, and that is the human spirit. So Titus 3.5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by means of the Holy Spirit. The second phrase that's used in the Greek is the phrase that we find here in John 3, Ganao Anothen. G-E-N-N-A-O is the verb for to be born, and Anothen, A-N-O-T-H-E-N, means again or from above. Literally, it means to be born again, born from above, and John uses this, as I have said, with this double meaning because both are true. It's a second birth. We're born physically alive and spiritually dead. So we need a second birth, subsequent to our physical birth, in order to see the kingdom of God. That second birth is defined as a spiritual birth, and it comes from above because the source is God, not man. So that brings us to point two. Point one is definition, two words, terminology, two words, polygonasia and gnaoanothen. And point number two is a definition. Definition of regeneration. Regeneration is defined as spiritual birth or being born again. Spiritual birth or being born again. It is the moment a person expresses faith alone in Christ alone. At the, at the moment a person expresses faith alone in Christ alone, the Holy Spirit creates a human spirit for the imputation of eternal life, and the believer passes from spiritual death to spiritual life. Let me go over that one more time. Brief definition is spiritual birth or being born again. At the moment a person expresses faith in Christ, at the moment a person expresses faith alone, in Christ alone, the Holy Spirit creates a human spirit for the imputation of eternal life, and the believer passes from spiritual death to spiritual life. Here's what happens. Someone explains to you the gospel, that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for your sins. He did all the work. Right before He died, He said, It is finished, the last thing He said on the cross. That means every single sin in human history committed by every single person in human history was paid in full. That's what tetelestai means. Paid in full. It is finished. Often it was written at the end of a bill when it was paid off in in Greek. Common word. When all the sins of human history are poured out on Jesus Christ, they're all paid for so that sin is no longer the issue. It's been paid for completely by Christ on the cross. The issue is, are you going to accept this free gift from God? Are you going to accept this payment? The basis is faith alone in Christ alone. Here you are. You have a body. You have a soul. God the Holy Spirit makes the gospel clear to you. You understand that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and that if you put your faith alone in Christ alone, if you accept this free gift, you will have eternal life. So you say, Father, I believe Jesus Christ died for me. At that moment, God the Holy Spirit creates a human spirit and imparts that to you, and that human spirit interacts with your soul to help you understand spiritual phenomena. 
at the same instant that God the Holy Spirit creates that human spirit and imparts that to you, God the Father imputes to that human spirit His very own eternal life. And at that moment, you pass from spiritual death into spiritual life. So what is the background for this? Why is it important? We can just hear Nicodemus, the wheels turning in Nicodemus' head, saying, why do I need to be, to have spiritual life? I've thought I've been spiritual. I mean, I've certainly used that term all my life. I've thought I've been spiritual. I've had this relationship with God, I thought. And now you're telling me I have no relationship with God and I have no spirituality. Let's get some background. Point number three is background. First point A. Every human being is either dichotomous or trichotomous. I'll spell those words for you. Dichotomous. D-I-C-H-O-T-O-M-O-U-S. Or trichotomous. T-R-I-C-H-O-T-O-M-O-U-S. Di means two, tri means three. Dichotomous refers to man being made up of two components. Body, which is physical or material, and a soul, which is immaterial. Trichotomous sees man as being made up of a body, a soul, and a human spirit. When this leads us to B, point B, under background. When Adam and Eve were originally created, they were perfect. They had everything. They had perfect righteousness. They were created in the image and likeness of God, and they were created trichotomous. They had a physical body, they had a human soul, and a human spirit. The human soul is made up of self-consciousness, mentality, emotion, volition, and a conscience. The human spirit interacts with the soul to give the soul the ability to understand spiritual phenomenon and to have rapport with God so that you can have a relationship with God. The human spirit is that component of man that enables the soul to have understanding of spiritual phenomena, rapport with God, and a relationship with God. And God had a relationship with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and day by day we're told that God would come and He walked in the Garden with Adam and Eve. So there was continual fellowship. But when God placed them in the Garden, He gave them a test. That test was to determine their loyalty to God and to provide evidence in the angelic conflict. You see, at some point in eternity past, long before God created mankind, there existed the most brilliant creature that ever came from the hand of God, known as Lucifer, and million, probably billions of angels. And Lucifer became arrogant and proud, and Lucifer decided that he wanted to be like God, so he led a revolt among the angels, and one-third of the angels followed him in that revolt. Well, God convened a courtroom hearing before the Supreme Court of Heaven. God evaluated all the evidence and declared Lucifer and all the angels that followed him guilty and sentenced them to eternity in the lake of fire. And then Satan pulled the ploy that so many people use today. Well, Lord, he challenged, I want to appeal this verdict. Because how can you, as a loving God, send your creatures to the lake of fire? See, that's the question so many people ask. 
it drives us right back to the problem that Nicodemus is facing. Nicodemus understood that God was perfect righteousness and justice and love. Nicodemus was ignoring the love of God. Satan, like so many people, was emphasizing the love of God and ignoring the righteousness of God. You see, the issue isn't how can a loving God send his creatures to the lake of fire. The issue is how can a righteous God have fellowship or relationship with fallen creatures who lack righteousness. Because God is righteousness, He can have a relationship only with those who are compatible with Him in perfect righteousness. So the issue is not how can a loving God send His creatures to the lake of fire. The question is how can a righteous God have fellowship or rapport or any kind of a relationship until the sin problem is dealt with. So, God responded to Lucifer's challenge. Lucifer said, well, God, how can a loving God do this? You're not really loving. You don't really care. And God said, okay, we're going to have a test case. We're going to set forth an example. We're going to create a lower creature and give that creature all kinds of opportunities. They're not going to be nearly as, uh, as advanced as angels. They're going to be created a little lower than the angels. And they are going to provide evidence in an appeal trial so all of human history is comparable to an appeal. And the human race is going to provide evidence to show that God is not only fair and just, but that He is also immeasurably loving in providing everything possible. And that the real issue is not the character of God. The issue is volition. The volition of creatures. Whether they are positive to God and respond to Him and obey Him, or whether they reject God and try to live life on their own terms, resulting in failure. So God sets up a test. He puts a tree in the middle of the Garden of Eden, and He says, you can eat from the tree of the fruit of the tree, any other tree in the garden, but you cannot eat from the fruit of this one tree. This is the issue. He's given Adam and Eve everything. He spends daily, spends time with them. Well, you know the story that they disobeyed God and they ate from that fruit. What appears to us to be an innocuous act. It didn't involve any heinous sin, any violence. It wasn't immoral. There was no adultery. There was no sexual sin. There was nothing like that. No murder or hostility. It was just a simple, innocuous act of eating a piece of fruit. But what it represented was disobedience to God. And that was the issue. What it represented was man trying to make, man, make life work on his own terms. What it represented was human arrogance, the desire to be the final arbiter of everything in the universe. Satan said it well when he tempted Eve. He said, he said if you eat of the fruit, you will be like God. And that's exactly what man wanted to do. They wanted to make all the decisions and reject God. So in arrogance, they ate of the fruit, and the result God had promised them was death. said, so in the day you eat of that, the moment you eat of that, you will certainly die. Now, there are seven different kinds of death mentioned in the Scripture. This isn't physical death. It's not sexual death. It's not temporal death. It's not carnal death. It's not the eternal death. It is spiritual death. And that is point C. God announced that the immediate consequence of disobedience would be spiritual death. Genesis 2.17 Spiritual death is then defined under point D. Point E was the penalty is spiritual death. D is that death has as its central meaning not cessation of existence, but separation. 
You see, most of the time when we think of death, we think somebody just stops existing. But that's not the inherent meaning of death. The inherent meaning of death is separation. In physical death, the immaterial part of man, the soul, is separated from the body, the the material part. In spiritual death, man is separated from God. So, point point D is that spiritual death is separation from God. The loss of rapport, the loss of fellowship, the loss of of, of all relationship with God. Man is separated from God, and we see that this is what happens in the garden. Because as God, on a daily basis, came to walk with Adam and Eve and to teach them and converse with them day by day, when God came that day, what did Adam and Eve do? They ran and hid. Because there was no longer the ability to have a relationship with God. They were now spiritually dead. And they tried to solve their problem on their own. Remember, they sewed fig leaves together. That's an example of man trying to solve the sin problem by his own works, his own efforts. And this continues today under the guise of religion. This is Satan's greatest, greatest tool, is religion. Man trying to gain the approval of God through his own works. Adam and Eve tried to do it by sewing fig leaves together. But God is love. God demonstrated that, that even though Adam and Eve had violated God's standard, God still came, didn't He? God is omniscient. He knew they had sinned. God still came to the garden. And then God provided a solution. They tried to cover up the consequences by sewing fig leaves together, which is nothing more than human works, human good, human effort. But God killed some animals, which is indicative of sacrifice. And He taught them the principle of sacrifice, that sin is so heinous, that sin is so evil and so wicked that the solution is not simple. The solution is going to require a death. And so the death of those animals pictured the ultimate death of Jesus Christ on the cross as their substitute. And so God slew those animals and He took the skins, He skinned them, and He made clothing for Adam and Eve from those skins. God provides the solution, not man. Human solution is no solution. The human solution comes from works, morality, good deeds, man trying to gain God's approval on his own efforts. But God provides the perfect eternal solution. You see, what happens as a result of sin is man is here, God is here. Before the fall, there was no problem between them. But as a result of the fall, there was a barrier erected between man and God so that man could not have a relationship with God on any basis. Man is behind that barrier. Man comes up with all kinds of religious activities to convince himself that he has a relationship with God. He thinks that he is indeed spiritual, and today that's become sort of a, 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 a coined word to describe all kinds of different activities. And everybody's into some kind of spiritual this or spiritual that, developing their spirituality or the spiritual side of life, and yet everybody seems to define it differently, and nobody goes to the authoritative Word of God to find out just exactly what spirituality is. Spirituality has to do with man's relationship with God. And that is our final point in terms of background, is that spiritual life is defined as that aspect of life that allows a human being to comprehend eternal truths, to understand divine phenomena, and have a relationship with God. Man is not born with a human spirit. Because Adam sinned, He lost his human spirit, and so every descendant of Adam and Eve 
are born dichotomous. They just have a body and a soul. That's why Jesus says there has to be a second birth. You have to receive a human spirit from the Holy Spirit in order to have eternal life. And that is the result of accepting Jesus Christ as Savior. Two things happened when man sinned. First of all, he lost righteousness. He went from being perfect righteousness to minus righteousness. So that the best man can do is relative righteousness. He can do better than anybody else. But in Isaiah 64, 6, God says, All your righteousness is like filthy rags. In other words, the best that man can do is garbage as far as God's concerned. So God has to provide the solution. If man cannot produce the perfect righteousness that God demands, then God must do it for man. God does all the work. Man accepts it. That's Christianity. It's a relationship based on God doing everything and man accepting it. And the consequences are that man is is blessed because of what God does and not what man does. The second thing that happens at the fall is that man acquired a sin nature. Not only did he lose the capacity to produce perfect righteousness, but he acquired a nature that had a propensity to sin and evil. And unless both aspects were taken care of, a cleansing which dealt with the sin nature and the acquisition of perfect righteousness, which is justification and imputation, then there would be no salvation. This barrier is erected between God and man. Man on the one side, God on the other side. This barrier is composed of various different components. The first component is sin itself. Isaiah 64, 6, all our righteousness as is filthy rags. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No matter what we do, we can never attain the absolute perfection God demands. Penalty of sin is the second problem, the second brick in the barrier. The penalty of sin is death. For the wages of sin is death, spiritual death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the penalty of sin is spiritual death. So man cannot have a relationship with God. The third problem, the third brick in the barrier, is the problem of physical birth. Man is born physically alive, but spiritually dead. Ephesians 2.1 says that we are born dead in our trespasses and sins. It can't be any more clear than that. The fourth is the problem of relative righteousness. God demands perfect righteousness, and we have minus R. So we cannot attain to the perfection that God demands. The next brick is the character of God. God is absolute perfection, absolute righteousness, and cannot have fellowship with that which lacks perfect righteousness. And then the final brick in the barrier is that we are born in Adam. We are identified with Adam in his sin and his rebellion, and that problem must be solved. Now, God in his remarkable grace provided a manifold system that would solve every single problem that was generated by Adam. God's solution takes care of every problem. Man simply has to accept it. The sin problem is resolved through redemption. Scripture says that in 1 Peter 1, 18-19, that we, are re- we have been redeemed not through the corruptible things, but through the precious blood of a lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. Un- the penalty of sin problem is solved through what the Scriptures call unlimited atonement. 
Jesus Christ paid this sin problem for everybody. He is the Savior of the whole world, not just those who believe. 1 Timothy 4.10 Physical birth problem. This is the one we're studying right now. Man is born physically alive and spiritually dead, and this is resolved through regeneration. John chapter 3, 1 through uh, 15, or 1 through 18, as well as Titus 3, 5. Regeneration. Man must be, have that spiritual birth. He must be uh, regenerated in order to have a relationship with God. He must receive that human spirit. The relative righteousness problem is solved through imputation, which means that at the cross, Jesus Christ had perfect righteousness. When we trust Christ as our Savior, God credits to our account His perfect righteousness. And so then, when God looks at that perfect righteousness that we now possess, doesn't mean we're practically righteous, we still have a sin nature, then God declares us to be just. We are justified because of what Christ did, not because of what we have done. The character of God problem is solved by propitiation. When God the Father, who is perfect righteousness and justice, looked down on the cross... He saw Jesus Christ pay the penalty and His absolute standard was satisfied by the perfection of Christ and His justice was satisfied, so God was propitiated. Romans 3, 22-26 and 1 John 2, 2. And finally, our position in Adam is resolved because at the point of salvation, we are identified with Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, we are now in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. So God solved the problem. This is the divine solution. How does that divine solution become yours? Simple. Accept it by faith. Scripture says, But as many as received Him, it's just the offer of a free gift, as many as received Him, to them He gave the power to be called the sons of God. Revelation 22 says, Anyone who comes can drink freely of the water of life. Freely. That means you don't have to do anything. You don't have to make yourself better. Ritual doesn't count. Religion doesn't count. Religious activity doesn't count. It's free water. It's just like across the street where we have the city well, city spring water that comes out. Anybody can go there and take water free of charge. doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter your background. Anybody can walk over there and get free water. That's what salvation is pictured as. You just come and you just take it. It's a free gift. God does everything. Man does nothing. Now the reason this is important is described in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. We'll just briefly look there before we close. First Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 says, or let's just go to verse 14. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Now this is a very interesting word here in the Greek, translated natural in your English Bibles. It is the Greek word, psuchikos, based on, that's P-S-U-C-H-I-K-O-S, based on, it's derived from the Greek word suke, P-S-U-C-H-E, which is where we get our word soul. So it's more technically translated the soulish man. What is a soulish man? This is a dichotomous man. He has a body and a soul, 
but no human spirit. And the Greek says, but a soulish man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. That means that the unregenerate, unsaved person only is soulish. He has no human spirit. And he cannot understand divine phenomena or divine truth because those come from the Holy Spirit. He is spiritually blind. He is born S-B-D. Spiritually brain dead. Cannot understand divine truth whatsoever. Oh, thinks he can. Thinks he has all kinds of knowledge. Nicodemus was that way. Thought he had all kinds of truth, but something bothered him. And he comes to Christ, and he says how he's really wanting to know if his righteousness is good enough. And Jesus says, no, it's not. He's spiritually brain dead. So what happens is somebody, a pastor, an evangelist, somebody explains the gospel, and it goes to a spiritually brain dead individual. Now, God the Holy Spirit steps in at that point to make the gospel clear, to help them to understand it. But they have to use their volition. They can either accept the gospel or reject it. At that point, God the Holy Spirit makes it clear to spiritually brain-dead unbeliever, and it becomes what the Bible calls gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, which is academic truth. He understands it academically. There are all kinds of people out there who understand that the Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But they have to use their volition. They have to accept it or reject it. If they accept it, then the result of that is that God the Holy Spirit creates a human spirit and they're regenerate. If they're negative, then they they may have more opportunities. But if they never accept the gospel, then the result is eternal condemnation. So 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us that a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are what? They are spiritually appraised. So it is learned through the Spirit. Right there we see that if you lack a human spirit, you can't understand divine things, you can't understand anything about spirituality, and you can't have a relationship with God. Now let's go back to John 3 and see how this shocked Nicodemus. Nicodemus was just floored at this point. Jesus says there's a physical birth in verse 6 and there's a spiritual birth. And Nicodemus is sitting there and he's just sort of vibrating at this point. And he's just overwhelmed. And he's like a lot of people. They're just sort of awed by, by the whole thing, but they're not going anywhere with it. And Jesus calls his attention. He says, stop marveling at this. You're just sitting there and you're thinking about it. It's all academic to you, and you're just saying, wow, this is really something. I'm really impressed with this, but I just don't grasp it all. And Jesus says, you've got to go beyond this. You've got to make some decisions, Nicodemus. Don't just marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Don't stop there. And then, in verse 8, we get one of the most remarkable and sophisticated arguments presented by the Lord Jesus Christ in all of Scripture. The more... The more I read what Jesus says, the more I'm impressed with the depth of the truth that's there and how sophisticated his arguments are and how simple they are and how most of us just go right past them and don't even catch what he's saying. Verse 8, he says, I want to point this out to you, Nicodemus. And in doing this, Jesus is not going to destroy Nicodemus' whole reliance 
upon a legalistic system, but he's going to knock the props out from under every single human viewpoint religious system ever in one masterful stroke. Verse 8, he says, he just, they're up there on the rooftop one evening in the nightfall in Jerusalem and the wind's blowing, and he takes this natural phenomenon that's right there to use it for an illustration. He says, Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it is going. That's the analogy. And he says, just like the wind that you can't understand, so is everyone who's born of the Spirit of God. He says, Nicodemus, this is spiritual truth. You've got to understand this to be saved, but the natural man can't do it on natural systems. See, wind, wind is, a, is a natural phenomenon that is, that is random. It's turbulence. That in science, the best that we can do is measure it, and we can make a number of statistic observations about wind. But wind is at the very edge of human intellectual ability to comprehend and understand because it's a random thing. You can't develop formulas on something that's purely random. You can't, you can't come up with laws. You can just describe certain things about it. So Jesus is saying, look, just like wind, which is beyond our ability to fully comprehend, we can describe it, but we can't understand it. Just as wind goes beyond man's natural abilities on the basis of empiricism and rationalism to understand, so spiritual truth is beyond human systems of knowledge, empiricism and rationalism. See, all empiricism says that man, on the basis of human experience, can understand everything. But there are limits to human empiricism. If we were to draw a graph here like this, and the bottom line represents time, Vertical line here represents space. Okay, time. Man can measure time down to a nanosecond. So we will draw a line here that the limits of human experience temporally are as far as we can measure down, uh, maybe not quite a nanosecond, but we can get down pretty small to microseconds and through time-lapse photography, we can get down to where we can see things and directly observe things that are very minute that take just split seconds we can, we can capture it on film. So that's the smallest increment in terms of time. Uh, on the other extreme, we can go to the limits of our own life. We can ex- see and experience and observe things from the time we're born until the time we die. If we're, if we're lucky and we're, we're educated, we can perhaps extend our past observations through historical records and other things back a few centuries. But beyond that, we have no direct knowledge, no direct observation. Nobody was there to observe it. In one sense, it's hypothetical and pure guesswork. So from the smallest increment of time to, to a split second up to the largest increment, which would be uh, history, those are the limits of human experience. In terms of space, uh, the smallest object we can see is Perhaps with an electron microscope, we can get down to uh, uh, sub-molecular particles, maybe even sub-atomic particles now, I'm not sure. But that's the, the lower limit of our observations. We can only have direct observations down to a certain, uh, certain level with a microscope. In terms of its, its size, uh, you can take any very large object, you can take universe or galaxies out there, and we can have direct observation of them through a telescope, something like that. 
But those are the limits. Man is within this box. He is confined by that box, and everything that man says, coming from his experience, is defined and limited by that box. And Jesus and the wind is beyond the box, beyond our experience. We can observe some things about it. We can say some things about it. But it's outside our, of our of human experience to uh, capture and pure knowledge. What Jesus is saying is that the regeneration is in that category because it is spiritual phenomena. Man tries to arrive at truth through various systems of knowledge. First would be rationalism, exemplified by Plato in the ancient world, Descartes in the modern world. But the limits of rationalism are the human mind. And the human mind can only go so far. If you analyze any system of logic or any system of human philosophy, ultimately they get down to what they call first principles. When you reach first principles, you're making assumptions. Every argument, every system, no matter what it is, relies on certain inherent assumptions that are adopted by faith. second system is empiricism. And we've just seen the limits of empiricism. So rationalism has its limits. Empiricism has its limits. Now, if we're going to know anything about spiritual truth, we have to get it from an authority who has been there, who knows something about spirituality. If you were living in the United States when this church was first begun in 1815, and you were asked to describe Japan, you would be doing pure guesswork. Any, you ask any member of this church when it began in 1815 what Japan was like, they had no idea. But anything they said, they could construct whole worlds from their imagination. But it would have nothing to do with reality because nobody had ever been there, none of them had ever been there, and they didn't know anyone who had ever been there, and they hadn't read any books by anybody who had been there. So they had no knowledge whatsoever but they could have pontificated at great length about what Japan was like. And that's just like most people when they talk about the spiritual life. The authority that they have is their own reason or their own experience, but that's limited. And what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is if you're trying to construct your concepts of God based on human experience and human reason, then it's going to fall apart because human experience is finite and we're talking about the infinite and Nicodemus is just overwhelmed. He said, how can these things be? Verse 10, Jesus says, uh, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that which we know and bear witness of that which we have seen, and you don't receive our witness. And I'm going to skip to the conclusion of his argument. We'll pick up the details next week. And in verse 13, Jesus says, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. So Jesus is saying right there, Nicodemus, You're not going to get there from rationalism. You're not going to get there from empiricism. You can't find out about the spiritual realm through human effort. You can only find out if God comes out of the infinite and to the finite. If God comes from heaven and becomes a man and tells you, if there is revelation from God, that's the only way you're going to know about God for sure. Everything else is pure guesswork, and that's what your religious system is based on. And I'm telling you, Nicodemus, if you are not regenerate, you will not see the kingdom of God. And it hit Nicodemus like a thunderbolt right between the eyes. And he was humble enough and honest enough with himself to realize that there was no life in what he taught and that life was only in Christ. For Nicodemus put his faith alone 
in Christ alone and accepted Jesus. Maybe not that night, but we know that by John 8 and definitely by the end of the gospel, by the time Jesus was crucified, that Nicodemus was among those who had put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But Jesus lays out a beautiful argument here, an example for all believers of all time to use when they explain the gospel to people. And that is that spiritual truth knowledge is not based on human experience or human reason because it comes from outside the box. Man's trapped in the box and he can't describe anything outside the box unless someone from outside the box comes. And the person who comes from outside the box is the Lord Jesus Christ. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this morning. Just the phenomenal truths that are here. That we on our own can do nothing to gain your approval. We can do nothing to find uh, approbation with you. We can do nothing to, to gain anything from you. But that you have done everything for us. That it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to your mercy, you saved us. Now, Father, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, we give this opportunity to anyone here who has never put their faith alone in Christ alone, who is uncertain of their eternal destiny, to do that at this moment. All they have to do is form words and thought alone, say, Father, I accept your free gift of Jesus Christ as my Savior. I believe He died on the cross for my sins, and that's all I need to do for eternal life. It's simple faith alone in Christ alone. Now, Father, we thank You for the things that we have learned, the spiritual truths that we have assimilated this morning, and pray that as the week goes by that we can continue to dwell on these things and that they will help us in our witnessing and evangelism. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.